The History of Philosophy, Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume, Lecture 12. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Our subject this evening is the objectivist answer to certain selected problems that arose in the history of philosophy in the period from Greece through David Hume. And I must at the outset delimit our assignment. Objectivism denies that any philosophic question can be answered in a vacuum. It holds that all philosophic problems and issues are interconnected and therefore that a full answer to any one philosophical question would require the presentation of a full system of philosophy. Now such a presentation of the objectivist philosophy is obviously impossible this evening. Throughout my presentation tonight, therefore, I am counting on a considerable knowledge on your part of the philosophy of objectivism. I am assuming that you're generally familiar with the objectivist literature, particularly with Ayn Rand's introduction to objectivist epistemology, with his presentation of the objectivist theory of concept formation, and that you're familiar with Galt's speech, with its overview and summary of the objectivist philosophy. And I'm assuming that you understand in particular the objectivist views we have already covered or mentioned in this course. Above all, the three fundamental axioms of objectivism. Existence exists, what we have been calling the primacy of existence. The axiom that one exists possessing consciousness, consciousness being the faculty of perceiving that which exists. And ASA, the law of identity along with its reformulations, the law of contradiction and the law of excluded middle. I'm counting also on your knowledge of the fallacy of the stolen concept, the fallacy of using a concept while denying or ignoring a more basic concept on which it depends. In general, I'm assuming an overall knowledge of objectivism in order to concentrate on three basic issues. First, the senses and all the tangled questions we have postponed now for weeks until this evening. Then, a discussion of the borderline case problem that arises in the theory of universals. And finally, a brief discussion of the problem of certainty and of what is wrong with the method of Cartesian doubt. All right, let us turn to the first issue to which we will devote the largest amount of time this evening, the issue of the validity of the senses. Why is the issue of sense perception so crucial to epistemology? Because as you know, man is born tabula rasa. He has no innate ideas. The senses are man's first and primary means of coming into contact with reality, of perceiving that which exists. The senses provide man with the basic evidence, which is the foundation of our entire cognitive structure. Everything that we know derives ultimately from the evidence provided by our senses. In particular, all concepts are formed on the basis of sensory evidence. Concepts are forms of organizing, relating, integrating, unifying sense experience. As such, the validity of human concepts, the issue of their relation to reality, depends on the validity of man's sense perceptions. If the senses are invalid, then at one stroke, the whole edifice of human knowledge collapses, 
and all concepts, all concepts are immediately invalidated. Now for a moment, forget all the objections raised against the senses across the centuries. Imagine, if you can, that you were in a rational class on philosophy, and the professor were discussing the issue of the validity of the senses. What would he have to say positively? In other words, apart from answering the countless objections accumulated through the ages. In essence, he would have very little to say. He would say the proposition that man's senses are valid is an expression of the axiom that man is conscious. Why? Well, what is meant by the term valid perception? The answer is, it means a perception of existence, of reality, a perception whose object is an existent, something which is. Notice, I do not say a valid perception is a perception of reality, quote, as it really is. The phrase, as it really is, in this context is a redundancy. There is no such thing as reality as it really isn't. There is no unreal reality, no non-existent existence. To perceive reality, quote, as it really is, is simply to perceive reality the one and only reality there is. Now, what would be the status of an alleged sense perception which was not valid? <coughs> a perception which was not a perception of existence? Well, it would have to be a perception of non-existence, i.e., of nothing, i.e., it would not be a perception at all, not a form of consciousness or awareness. If invalid perception means, as it does, a perception of something other than existence, it means a state of awareness of nothing. And as such, it is a contradiction in terms. This is true for any perceiving species, whatever its organs and means of perception. If it perceives, it perceives something that is. In other words, its perceptions are valid. To say that man's senses are invalid is to say that man has no means of awareness of reality. In other words, that he is unconscious. For this reason, the issue of the validity of the senses is contained in the fundamental axiom of consciousness. In stating that man is conscious, one implies man's means of awareness are means of awareness. In other words, his senses are valid. Now, don't be confused here by the phenomenon of dreams or hallucinations. Dreams, hallucinations, and equivalent phenomena are not sense perceptions. They are not examples of man sensorially perceiving something other than existence. Once a man acquires a certain content of experiences from his perception of reality, it is possible for him, under certain circumstances, temporarily to detach his consciousness from the perception of reality and contemplate instead the stored and remembered sensory images in his mind, the content he originally acquired from the perception of reality. In such a case, he is not engaging in sense perception at all. He is turning his consciousness in on itself 
and contemplating his own stored content of experiences, images, etc. Such a phenomenon is possible only because he has initially acquired this content, acquired it, or at least its ultimate constituents, by direct perception of reality. The phenomenon of dreams, hallucinations, etc., presupposes a prior contact with reality. Such phenomena do not prove that consciousness can sensorially perceive something other than reality. They prove the opposite. Only because man does perceive reality when he senses, is he able, under certain circumstances, to acquire the kind of mental contents, which then makes it possible for his consciousness, temporarily, to turn in on itself and contemplate the data thus initially acquired from a direct awareness of reality. For the rest of this evening, therefore, please forget about dreams, hallucinations, and phenomena of that nature. I am talking about sense perception. And sense perception is always perception of existence, of reality, of things which are. Now, against this background, let us turn to the central argument against the senses, the one raised by Protagoras in ancient Greece and accepted in various forms by the overwhelming majority of philosophers ever since. You recall the argument. How can you ever claim to perceive reality by means of your senses, the argument states. After all, you only perceive reality by means of your particular sensory organs, your sensory apparatus. If your sensory organs were different, your perception would be different. All you can say, the argument concludes, is this is how reality appears to me granted my particular sensory apparatus. You can never know how things really are in themselves. Now I would like you to consider this argument, which we have encountered repeatedly in the course. Consider it carefully from the point of view of objectivism. The argument objects to the fact that man can only perceive reality by specific means his sense organs. Since this is so, the argument claims you can never perceive reality, quote, directly, or never perceive reality in itself, only reality as processed by your sensory apparatus, merely how your consciousness gets reality. Now ask yourself, what is therefore the ideal of this type of argument? What would its exponents regard as an actual perception of reality. What would they call perceiving reality directly? Well, only one thing. If man could jump outside of his own senses, in other words, outside of his means of awareness, outside of his consciousness, and somehow go out to contact things without benefit of sense organs, without having any specific means of perception at all. This, according to the argument, would be a true perception. The perception that this argument yearns for, and in the name of which it condemns human perception, is perception by no means, and therefore in no specific form. Perception, know-how. So long as you perceive by any specific means, 
they write that off as invalid. That, they say, is simply your type of sensory mechanism, your specific type of consciousness. That's merely the form in which a consciousness of your kind perceives. Since man's consciousness is something specific, since it operates by specific organs and agencies, by specific means and in specific forms, it is invalid. That is the meaning of the argument. Now observe that this argument is wider than simply an attack on human consciousness. It is in fact an attack on all consciousness, of any kind whatever, animal, human, Martian, if such a thing exists, divine, assuming for purposes of pedagogy that it exists. Are an animal's percepts valid by this argument? Any animal now, regardless of the nature or keenness of its sense organs? The thunderous answer is no. After all, the animal still has specific sense organs. It too perceives only reality as it perceives it. Reality as it affects its consciousness. <clears throat> what about the Martian? Suppose he has radically different sensory apparatus. He has no eyes, no ears. Imagine he has a bulbous receptacle on his or its forehead, which twitches. And an appendage on its equivalent of a nose which buzzes so that the Martian perceives reality in terms not of color or of sound, but of some kind of twitches or buzzes. Now, obviously, these are of a kind we do not gain from our senses, and I therefore cannot describe them further to you. But the question is, would this Martian perceive reality according to Protagoras' argument? No. The Martian, the argument would go, perceives reality only as it affects a Martian type of consciousness, only as processed by Martian organs. Even God's consciousness, assuming he exists, and assuming that he perceives somehow, is invalidated by this argument. However God perceives, Protagoras could come back to him and say, you, God, only perceive reality as it appears to God. You only perceive the effects of reality on the divine means of perception. You only perceive reality in a divine form. So again, you don't perceive reality directly, truly, validly. <clears throat> well, what sort of consciousness then could perceive reality validly, even in theory? And the answer would have to be a consciousness which is not limited to any specific means of perception. A consciousness without any means of consciousness. A consciousness which perceives in no specific form at all. A consciousness which isn't this type of consciousness as distinct from that type. A consciousness which is nothing in particular. In other words, which has no identity. This is the ideal of the Protagorean argument, and this is its standard for epistemology. The only consciousness which could perceive reality is a consciousness without identity, a consciousness which is nothing, in other words, which doesn't exist. 
the Protagorean argument attacks human consciousness, not in the name of an allegedly superior consciousness, but in the name of a zero, a nothing, an entity without a nature or identity. And as such, the argument invalidates all consciousness, any consciousness, consciousness as such, human or any other kind. Now, it is by this means that philosophers have come to accept the following disastrous idea. If a consciousness has identity, it cannot perceive reality. Or putting it another way, if consciousness is something, it cannot perceive anything. And then, as usual, given this false premises, philosophers proceed to divide into two opposed camps, both accepting the same basic premise. The one side is the skeptics, which later became the Kantians, later, that is to say, after Hume and the termination of our course. And they declare consciousness does have an identity, it is something, therefore it doesn't perceive reality. The other side, desperate to defend the validity of consciousness, and most of the so-called naive realists are in this side, says, oh yes, consciousness can perceive reality because it has no nature. It is nothing in itself. What is common to both of these theories? The following absurdity. If consciousness is a something, if it has a nature, if it has specific means of perception, perception is impossible. Paraphrasing Ayn Rand, it is having eyes which stand in the way of seeing, having ears which stand in the way of hearing, having specific organs of perception which make perception impossible. Now by contrast, what is the objectivist position? A is A. Everything which exists is what it is. It has a specific delimited, definite, finite nature. It is rigidly bound by the laws of identity and causality. And all of this applies not only to facts of the physical world, but also to consciousness. Consciousness, any consciousness, is something. It has a specific nature. Each conscious species perceives by specific means and in a specific form, a form which is determined by its particular means of perception. This is the base from which all epistemology must proceed and by reference to which all epistemological concepts and standards must be defined. If we are talking about perception, then since consciousness has identity, we must always understand perception to mean perceiving reality by some means and in some form. There is no such thing as perceiving reality know-how, by no means in no form. For instance, speaking of human perception, we perceive an object, say, by means of light waves reflected from its surface to our eyes. That is the means, and the resultant form is color. We perceive a different aspect of existence by means of certain vibrations striking our ears. That is the means, and the resultant form is sound. 
we perceive still another aspect of existence by means of bringing certain sensory receptors into contact with the energy states of various molecular combinations. That is the means, and so the form is a heat or cold, etc. In all cases, the object of our perception, what we are perceiving, is a fact out there, a fact of reality. But in all cases, we are perceiving it by a certain means, and so in a certain form. So the contrast between the objectivist view and let's call it the traditionalist view is this. The traditionalist view says if you perceive reality by a certain means, then you are not perceiving reality, only its effects on you. A means of perception is incompatible with perceiving existence. Objectivism says the exact opposite. It says only the existence of a means of perception makes consciousness possible. The fact that consciousness must perceive in a certain form does not invalidate consciousness. That's what makes it possible. The traditionalists say identity is the obstacle to the perception of reality. Objectivism says only because consciousness has identity can it perceive reality. And since this is true, we must always distinguish in any process of knowledge the object what you know, reality, and the how, the means by which you know it. The object is reality. The how determines only the form of your perception of reality. But all forms of perception are forms of perception, i.e., forms of awareness of reality. As such, all forms of perception <laughs> are valid. Now you can see the fundamental error of the causal theory of perception, as we have discussed it now many weeks. It is true that reality is the cause of our perceptions, but our perceptions are perceptions of reality. Distinguish here between two statements, which may sound similar, but there is a life and death difference between them. The objectivist view is, Man perceives reality, notice he perceives reality by means of its effects on his consciousness. The causal theory of perception says man does not perceive reality but only its effects on his consciousness. Objectivism says the object is reality, the means, its effects on our sense organs. The causal theory of perception makes the means of perception into the object of perception, thus invalidating man's consciousness, cutting it off from reality. The truth is that we do not perceive effects while being locked up in consciousness. We perceive reality directly, and we do so by means of the operation of our sense organs. <coughs> so much also, by the way, for the representative theory of perception. Our experience does not, quote, represent, or copy, or stand for, or any synonym of those, uh, reality. It is directly of reality. It is not that a separate world is reproduced in consciousness, and that we are confined to that world of consciousness, and we then have to engage in arguments about whether it does or doesn't correspond to an external reality that we never perceive. This entire viewpoint is false. Our experience is directly of reality. 
Now, if you think about it, you will see that the advocates of the causal theory of perception and the representative theory of perception use stolen concepts all over the place. What is, now think, what is an experience or a perception or a sensation or any equivalent term? These terms designate states of consciousness, not objects of consciousness. A sense perception is a state of awareness, an unanalyzable awareness of reality mediated directly by a sense organ. And equivalent definitions are applicable to a perception, a sensation, etc. Nobody perceives experiences. Let me repeat that. Nobody perceives experiences. You perceive things, things in reality, and then we give the name perception to our awareness of these things. To speak of perceiving perceptions or experiencing experiences is to speak of being aware of your awareness, which immediately raises the question, your awareness of what? Consciousness requires an object. We do not sit locked up in our consciousness perceiving its perceptions, of its perceptions, of its perceptions, and so on to infinity, with nothing there being perceived. We perceive reality. Of course, we can be self-conscious. We can be aware that we are aware, aware that we are perceiving. But for this to be possible, we must first be aware of something, of an object, of an existent. All right, now let us turn to a series of questions and objections raised by philosophers owing to the fact that not all consciousnesses perceive reality in the same sensory forms. Now this much is true. Animals, for instance, have to a certain extent different capacities of sense perception from men. There are variations in the structure of human sense organs. And if you want to, for pedagogical purposes, go ahead and project a race of Martians who perceive reality in the form of the twitches and buzzes I mentioned earlier. In other words, let us grant the fact that there are many different forms of sense perception possible depending upon the different types of consciousness that exist. Now, many philosophers think that this poses a grave objection to the senses. What objection? Well, the commonest one is this. They say if two different consciousnesses perceive the same object in different forms, owing to their different means of perception, doesn't this lead to a contradiction? To take the standard example, a man with normal vision looks at a given object and says, it's red. The colorblind man looks and says, it's gray. And then the question goes, isn't this a contradiction? It can't be both red and non-red, can it? So somebody's sense experience must be wrong. Now the answer to this objection is no contradictions between any form of perception and any other are logically possible. When a person says this object is red, what is he validly entitled to mean by the statement? Bearing in mind everything I've said up to now, well, he must recognize that he is perceiving the object in a specific form, determined by his specific means of perception. 
He cannot evade the issue of means and pretend he has some kind of mystic revelation from the object and that the nature of his specific means of perception is irrelevant. What then can he validly mean by the statement, it is red? The answer is the following. It is an entity in reality of a specific nature such that when it acts upon my senses, I perceive it in the form of red color. And this is true. That is what it is. Now the colorblind man says, it is gray. What can he validly mean by the statement? It is an entity in reality of a specific nature, such that when it acts upon my senses, I perceive it in the form of gray color. And that is true. That is what it is. Both are true statements. Neither conflicts with or contradicts the other. And if the Martian comes in and says, it is twitchy, the same applies to him. It is an entity in reality of a specific nature such that when it acts on his senses, he perceives it in the form of twitchiness. In sum, each man and Martian must recognize that his perceptions are perceptions of reality. They are not whims. They are not subjective inventions or distortions. A man has no choice regarding the nature of his perceptions. Each of his perceptions is an inexorably determined effect caused by an object in reality acting on his particular organs of perception. If each perceiver properly defines what he is entitled to claim about the object, there is no contradiction at all. Where is the appearance of a contradiction? Only if one of them thinks, I have a mystical contact with reality. I perceive without benefit of sense organs. I just, so to speak, wrap my consciousness around the object and see it, quote, really. Everyone else is seeing it invalid. Only this attitude is what causes the trouble. But this represents a crucial error. Now another question, deriving from the fact of differences of sensory forms. If consciousnesses can perceive in different forms, and they derive all of their conceptual conclusions about reality from their sense experiences, doesn't this mean that the various consciousnesses will come to different conceptual conclusions about the nature of reality? The answer to the question is no. Differences of sensory form do not matter and have no epistemological importance at all. The conceptual conclusions, the conceptual conclusions you will come to about reality will be identical, whether you are human or Martian, possessed of normal vision or colorblind or you name it. Take the normal human being. We perceive reality in terms of color, tactile sensations, and so on. We have these sense data. Now what do we do with them cognitively? They are the material of knowledge but they are not yet conceptual knowledge. What do we do with our sensory data to build the structure of human knowledge? Now, as you know from Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, we observe similarities and differences in our perceptual material. Similarities and differences. <clears throat> and we proceed then to abstract, omit measurements, integrate, form concepts. In other words, rise to the conceptual level and then proceed conceptually to discover the laws of reality, formulate our scientific theories, and so on. 
What is the function of the senses in this process? Twofold. One, to give us the basic evidence of existence, of what is. And two, more specifically, to give us the evidence of similarities and differences among existence, which evidence is then the basis permitting us to rise to the conceptual level. Now ask yourself, what difference does it make? In what form you perceive the initial data from reality, the initial similarities and differences, and thus are unable to develop to the next cognitive state. So long as your perceptual form permits you to develop a knowledge of similarities and differences, and every perceptual form does this, the rest is the work of the mind, of the conceptual faculty, not of the senses, and differences of sensory form are simply irrelevant. Now the simplest case on which to see this is the case of the so-called red-green inversion. You know, this is a question that's sometimes asked. How do you know that whenever you perceive what you call red, the man next to you, perceiving the same object, doesn't have the experience that you have, but has the experience of green, of what you would call green, and vice versa? So your red and green perceptions are inverted or reversed. Well, apart from the fact that this is a baseless fancy, assume for the moment it were true. So what? He still classifies objects precisely as you do. He puts all objects of a certain group together as similar in color, the very ones that you put together. He contrasts this group with the other, and so do you. You both classify and conceptualize in exactly the same way. So what difference does it make that, what you, uh, uh, that you grasp these two groups initially in different sensory forms? It makes no difference. In fact, it wouldn't even come up. You'd never even learn about such a difference if it existed, because all of your conceptual activities would be the same as his in regard to these objects. You'd call them by the same word, since words are ultimately defined ostensibly simply by pointing, and the whole construct in some means nothing at all. The same principle is true of the Martian with his twitches and buzzes. Whatever similarities he perceives in his twitchy, buzzy form are there. They are real. And his concepts therefore reflect objective facts of reality, just as yours do. Only. What you hold in the form of color, he holds in the form of twitches. What wider significance does this have? None. In this respect, and as an analogy only, you can compare the sense, uh, the sense perceptions to a language. A language is a unified system of signs by which you hold all your concepts. And every language is capable in principle of saying whatever there is to be said. There is no contradiction between French and English, for instance. Both languages refer to the same reality, the same facts. Both are equally valid. The difference is only in the form of the signs. Well, in an analogous way, and this is just an analogy, you can think of sensory form as a language. You can think of your perceptions of reality as written in, held by you in a specific sensory form a specific code by which you hold and have your perceptions of existence. Of course, in contrast to language, this is not a man-made code. It is completely determined by the facts of reality, 
and the nature of your consciousness, its means of perception. There is no choice in this case, as there is in the case uh, of which language you will speak. But the relevant point is, the fact that there can be many such sensor sensory codes possessed by different species is as irrelevant as in the case of language, where there are many. Because all of them are just so many sensory codes to enable the perceiver to grasp the same ultimate facts of reality. For this reason, all perceivers will agree about the nature of reality. None will contradict the others. In actual fact, there are only two differences between the various sensory forms that do or theoretically might exist. One, how much information is given directly by the senses of a particular species. And two, what particular information is given directly. In other words, some sensory forms are superior, not in terms of validity, all are equally valid, but in terms of the quantity of evidence they give the perceiver directly. And some can vary in terms of what type of information they give. Let us consider each of these cases briefly. And first, the case of senses giving different amounts of information. Take the case of a totally colorblind man who will not be able directly to discriminate differences that we can by simple perception. Suppose he perceives everything as the same shade of gray. He therefore gets less direct information about the differences in reality than we do. Does it follow that he then has his own physics? No. He must then learn by inference from what he does perceive directly that there are facts here outside of his range of direct perception. And of course, the study of the phenomenon of light will give him ample evidence of such facts. At the end of his cognitive quest, he will end up with the same physics as the normally sighted person. Just as, for instance, we have come to learn of infrared and ultraviolet ranges of the spectrum by inference from what we do perceive, even though this information is not given to us directly. Or just as we are able to discover frequencies of sound outside the human range of hearing, frequencies that dogs, for instance, can hear. Now consider the second point of difference. If you want an example of a completely different kind of information given by a sensory apparatus, let's be bizarre for a moment. Imagine a species of atoms with consciousness. And of course, given the scale of size of an atom, let us say that they perceive the atomic structure of things directly. So for them, the fact that matter is atomic is not a theory to be reached by inference, as in our case. They actually perceive only whirling clouds of particles. Now, you might be tempted to say, oh, well, then their form of perception is more valid than ours. They see things really. But that would be wholly false. By the very fact that their consciousness, as we are hypothesizing, operates on a submicroscopic range of perception, by that very fact they do not gain from the senses the kind of information we get directly. We get information, real information about reality directly, that they don't. We have to infer submicroscopic objects. They have to infer macroscopic objects like this table or the Empire State Building. They can't take in directly 
given the scale of their senses, large-scale physical objects. So it takes a genius among their species to reason to the conclusion that there must be special forces in reality binding these whirling particles together into objects too large to be grasped directly. In effect, the genius in their species is required to reach the conclusions available to the morons in ours, and vice versa. No form of perception can perceive everything directly. Why? Because A is A. Any sensory apparatus is finite, it is limited. By virtue of being able to perceive one aspect of reality with one type of sensory apparatus, you cannot then expect to perceive directly some other aspect if it would depend upon a different scope or kind of sensory apparatus. Now I conclude, therefore, that all forms of sense perception, all, are valid. That no contradictions are possible among them, that all perceivers regardless of differences in form, regardless of what particular information they get directly from perception and what they must reach by inference, will, if they're rational, end with the same conceptual account of the nature and laws of reality. Well, now you may ask, have we finished with the issue of the validity of the senses? Not yet. There is a final crucial question I must raise. And that question can best be put, what is the metaphysical status of the sensory qualities we perceive? What is the metaphysical status of the sensory qualities we perceive? Uh, to make the issue clear in its crudest terms, if you discuss the senses with anybody, with many people, I should say, you will commonly be asked where are the qualities you perceive or experience. Where, for instance, is color, warmth, solidity, heat, size, shape, etc.? Are they only in here, in the mind, only subjective? Or are they out there, in reality, intrinsic in things, part of things in themselves? The subjective idealists like Bishop Barclay, say all sensory qualities are subjective. They're all in the mind. The typical naive realist today says all sensory qualities are intrinsic in the objects in reality. And then the Descartes-Locke axis, which is usually called critical realism. They are kind of the Republicans or compromisers of sense theory. They say there's two kinds of sensory qualities to primaries, extension, including size, shape, etc., which are intrinsic in things in reality, and the secondaries, color, sound, smells, taste, etc., which are subjective, existing only in the mind. Now, the point I want to make is that objectivism disagrees with all three of these theories. Now, before criticizing them, I want first to develop the objectivist viewpoint on this issue as defined by Ayn Rand, and which she has communicated to me in a lengthy series of discussions. Then after presenting the objectivist view, we can turn briefly in conclusion to criticize these theories. Now the first point to note is that sensation is the product of an interaction, an interaction, a physical, 
physiological interaction between two entities, the physical object and the relevant sense organs of the perceiver. Each of these entities is essential to the end product, which is the sensation. Without the physical object, there is nothing to perceive, i.e., no sensation. Without the sense organs, there is no means of perception, i.e., no sensation. The process of sensation is a process of physical interaction between two entities in reality. Now, if you think about this, you will see that it immediately invalidates any question which asks where is the sensation or the sensory quality. There is no answer to this question because the question is invalid. You cannot ask such a question about anything which is the product of a physical interaction. Now take a simple example of first having nothing to do with the senses at all. An Oldsmobile and a Cadillac collide. Now a collision is a type of interaction between the two cars. Does it make sense for me to ask where is the collision? Is it in the Oldsmobile? Is it in the Cadillac? In the ashtrays under the seat covers? <laughs> now all of these answers are senseless because the question is senseless. The collision designates a relationship between the two entities and cannot be declared to be in one as against in the other. In one sense, it is in neither. It is a process in which both partake, but which is not a thing located in either one by itself. In another sense, the collision is in both because it is a process in which both partake. Or take another example, this time involving the senses. I play a phonograph record of a Viennese operetta, which I listen to. And now I ask you, where is the operetta? Is it in the record? Is it in my ears? Is it in my brain? Is it in my mind? Now these are clearly foolish questions because the answer to all of them is yes and no, depending upon the aspect in question. The operetta is in the record in the sense that the record is so structured that when a certain needle moves over its surface in a certain way, a human perceiver will hear the music. But the operetta is not in the record all by itself as though some kind of submicroscopic soprano were nestling between the grooves, <laughs> belting out tiny notes to herself. And the same is true for the ears. Is the operetta in your ears? If so, where? The outer ear, the middle ear, or the inner ear? Is it in your brain? Is it in your mind? Well, in one sense, obviously, no. When you listen to the operetta, you are not humming sub-vocally to yourself. You are not just imagining or hallucinating. You are hearing an event in reality. It is not just, quote, in your mind. In another sense, obviously the operetta is in your mind. In the sense that if no one were conscious, the record could spin forever and no one would hear any sounds. So where is the operetta? In the record? In the air vibrations? In the ear twitches? In the nerve cells? In the brain's gray matter? In the consciousness? The answer is all of these and or none. The question is invalid. 
Now the same principle applies in regard to all sense experiences. Since they are the product of a physical interaction between entities in reality, it is a fundamental error to ask where are the sense qualities? In the object out there or in the mind in here? The answer, as in the previous case, is both or neither. In other words, the question is invalid. What you can say is only two incontestable facts. One, without consciousness, no sensations. In other words, no conscious states would exist. States of consciousness are states of consciousness and would not exist without consciousness. In this sense, if there were no perceiving beings, there would be no perceptions, no sensations. And secondly, just as obvious and just as important, consciousness is consciousness of something, of an object in reality. And without the something, without the object, there would be no sensations or perceptions either. The sensation or perception is not an invention of consciousness, it is a form of awareness of the object. Now this brings me to the next point. As a form of awareness, sensation is a cognitive process. By means of this physical interaction of object and sense organ, man gains information, real information, an enormous amount of information about the facts of reality. A sensation is not a subjective effect divorced from the object. It is not a creation of consciousness which has nothing to do with the object. On the contrary, the precise nature of your sensation is a result of the total properties of the object in question and a lead to the ultimate conceptual discovery of these properties. You can, in this respect, think of man's senses as entities which operate to sum up, that is the key term here, to sum up an enormous range of facts about the object in reality being sensed. To give you a whole body of information condensed in the form of a single sensation. All of science, in fact, is nothing more than the unraveling, in other words, the conceptual identifying of the information summed up implicitly in our sensations. For instance, you open your eyes and see that an ashtray is red. Here, in the form of a single sensation of redness, you receive a vast amount of information about the object, although you must rise to the conceptual scientific level to be able to identify this information. What is it about the object that is in fact indicated by the perception of it as red? That it is an object which absorbs certain kinds of light waves and fails to absorb others. That to do so it has to have a certain kind of surface structure. That this involves a certain kind of physical chemical constitution on its part, etc., etc. If it's an apple that's red, the red indicates in addition that the apple is ripe, i.e. that it's undergone a certain biological development, has reached a certain stage of maturity, with everything this implies. So far from it being true that redness is merely a subjective state of consciousness divorced from reality, redness, of course I've given you just the sketchiest beginnings of a few examples, Redness is actually a summary in the form of a single sensation 
of a whole host of properties possessed by the objects in reality. Now it is not, of course, necessary that every perceiver in the universe gain this information in the form of a red sensation. There could be, as we have seen, different forms of perception, different kinds of sensation as a result of the interaction of the object with different kinds of senses. But the cognitive point here remains unaffected by this. Whatever the form of the sensation, our sensations summarize a host of facts about the entity in reality. They are the product of the total entity in reality, and all of science is the unraveling of the information they implicitly contain. Now, this cognitive role is true, by the way, of every sensation. Consider the case of the tickle. Now, you recall that advocates of the primary-secondary quality distinction love to compare the so-called secondary qualities to the tickle you get from a feather. The tickle, they say, is simply subjective. It tells you nothing about the feather. It's merely the subjective effect in you. In fact, this is completely false. The tickle gives you definite information about the feather. It summarizes in the form of a single sensation a whole body of information about the properties, structure, texture, etc. of the feather. If you doubt this, a simple experiment will show it to you. Try drawing a variety of different objects across your body, and you will get a different summary from your sensations, revealing to you the nature of radically different objects. Draw a rose thorn across your arm, and you will not get a tickle, but a scratch. Does this indicate something about the nature of the red thorn in reality as against the feather? Does it give you information about a real fact of reality? Try drawing the edge of a razor blade across your skin, and you will not get a tickle or a scratch, but a sharp cut. Try drawing a pipette dripping sulfuric acid across your skin, and you will get neither a tickle nor a scratch nor a cut, but a searing agony. <laughs> In all these cases, you are gaining information about the entity. You are perceiving a whole range of facts about the entity summed up in the different cases in the form of different sensations. Are the sensations then just inventions or products of consciousness, divorced from facts of existence, not indicative of facts of existence? Obviously, no. They are cognitive elements. And if this is true of a tickle, which is the bastion of the secondary quality people. It is obviously equally true of all the so-called secondary qualities. They are not independent of the objects which produce them. They are not simply non-cognitive, subjective effects on us in here. They are objective indicators in a certain form of what is out there. Now, of course, from having one sensation, you cannot acquire all of the knowledge implicitly summed up by that sensation. If I stick a knife in a baby and he feels the pain, he has only a single and to him inexplicable sensation and so far has not learned any facts about the knife. He merely feels the subjective effect of the knife on him. 
so long as we are on the most primitive level of consciousness, the level of being bombarded with single sensations, so long as we do nothing cognitively with them, then to that extent, the sensation is simply a feeling in consciousness which generates no information about the entities in reality. What must the baby do to begin unraveling, actually acquiring the information implicit in his sensation of pain? He must utilize all of his senses in relation to the knife. He must look at it and observe its shape, finger it and observe its sharp edge, pick it up and feel its solidity, drop it and hear the thud it makes on falling, etc., etc. After such a sensory survey appropriately performed, the brain of the baby, and this point we mentioned last week, learns to integrate all these separate sensations into an entity. And the baby rises to the perceptual level, where he is aware not merely of separate sensations, but of integrated percepts. In other words, integrated material entities. At this stage, he is in a position to grasp at least part of the information initially implicit in the sensation of pain. The knife causes him pain, he can grasp because it is solid and sharp, as against the feather, which is very different in texture and structure. At this point, on a primitive level, by means of having integrated his sensations into an entity, the baby can begin to unravel the information given by his separate sensations and grasp what about the entity caused those sensations. A separate sensation by itself does not directly give him information about the object. By itself, it is simply a feeling in consciousness. But when he has integrated it with all the rest of the sensory data from the object, the individual rises to the level where he can grasp entities and thus be in a position to begin extracting from his sensations the information they contain implicitly. Those who declare as a formal theory in epistemology that sensations are simply subjective feelings, subjective effects, which are devoid of information about reality, are thus ascribing to mankind as a whole the cognitive primitiveness of a newborn baby. Their epistemological model of man is he possesses only the knowledge available to a newborn infant who has not yet risen to the perceptual level. The infant, they declare in effect, gets only subjective effects from his sensations. No information about reality. Therefore, neither does man the adult man who has integrated his sensations and reached the perceptual level. And of course, beyond the perceptual level is the conceptual, the distinctively human level, the level on which scientific explanation becomes possible. Once that level is reached, man can begin to define explicitly the information about the knife implicit in his sensations and only partly accessible even on the perceptual level. Now he can enter into an analysis of the knife's structure and density and the nature of the body's receptors and nerves and so on and so on. In other words, the kind of analysis required fully to grasp the causes of the sensation of pain, the facts about the knife which make it a source of pain as against a feather. 
But the conceptual level, as you know, is a development from the perceptual, which is in turn an integration of the sensational stage. The point is, the information reached explicitly on the conceptual level was there, in the sensational stage, implicitly contained and summed up in our sensations. If it were not there, we could never have risen to the conceptual level. So much for the idea that the so-called secondary qualities are simply subjective sensory effects in the mind devoid of cognitive significance in relation to objects. Now, having said all this, have we now satisfied the advocates of the so-called secondary qualities? Have we now satisfied them that color, sound, etc. are real and not subjective? You might think so, but the answer is still no. At this point, they will argue as follows. And let us take red as the example of all such secondary, so-called secondary <laughs> sense qualities. Red, they will say, is not an intrinsic quality of things in themselves. They will say, after all, you yourself admit that red is an effect, an effect on human consciousness of what exists out there in reality. So redness, they conclude, is not a quality of things in themselves. It is merely an effect. It is produced by more basic factors in reality, light waves and so on, operating on your sense organs. That's the argument we want to turn to now. You got it? Now follow the implications of this argument as Ayn Rand pointed them out to me. Red is declared to be not an attribute of things in themselves because it is not a causal primary. In other words, an irreducible fact without any deeper cause underlying it. Because our perception of redness has a cause, a cause involving both the object in reality and our sensor. For that reason, redness is disbarred from the status of a real attribute of things in themselves. So by this standard, the only facts that qualify as attributes of things in themselves are causal primaries. In other words, attributes which cannot be explained by reference to anything more fundamental. Attributes which are irreducible ultimate facts of reality, which are not in any way the product of deeper causes. Now I ask you, if being a causal primary in this sense is the standard of being really real, how are we to tell what is a causal primary and what is not? At one point in human knowledge, people did think redness was a causal primary. They thought that redness was simply an intrinsic property of things without any underlying cause. And then it was discovered that light waves and so on underlie red, and that red is an effect on our sense organs of light waves. Well, are light waves causal primaries? Are they irreducible facts of reality without deeper explanation? Obviously not. According to the latest theories, Light waves themselves are effects, expressions of various energy and or particle combinations. Is energy 
Is subatomic particles a causal primary? The point is, how would you know? Only one way. You would have to know every attribute of matter, every constituent of physical reality, in order to be able to say, I have surveyed the totality. I know everything there is to know about the physical world, and thus I see that X, whatever it is, is the ultimate ingredient, the basic cause of everything else, the real constituent out of which everything else is made, in which everything else reflects. You would have to be omniscient, literally omniscient, to grasp that this X is the ultimate unit and cause of every other phenomenon in reality. To declare that only causal primaries qualify as real attributes of reality is to declare man can never claim any of his knowledge as knowledge of reality, in other words, as knowledge until he is omniscient, which means he can know nothing until he knows everything. Well, if so, how is he supposed to get to the stage of knowing everything? To deny redness the status of reality on the ground that it is an effect of deeper causes, to denounce man's senses because they only provide us with effects, is to declare, I won't accept the validity of the senses unless what they give us is the causal primaries of reality the ultimate elements or attributes which underlie everything else, the irreducible building blocks of the universe. I demand that the senses give me ultimate causes, not effects. And since they give me effects, they are invalid. That's the meaning of the claim. Now this is a classic example of what Ayn Rand calls the fallacy of rewriting reality. The fact is, reality does not give us, by perception, by perception, reality does not give us the ultimate causal primaries of existence. It gives us effects, qualities which are real, but which are the products of complex underlying causes acting on our senses, causes which modern science is nowhere yet near unraveling completely. By what logical right does an individual stamp his foot in a petulant state and declare, if I had created reality, we would have been given the ultimate causes by direct perception. Since we're not given them and only affects, our senses are no good and knowledge is impossible and I leave. <laughs> now, this is obviously a grotesque departure from reality and a grotesque standard by which to judge the senses. But let us follow this construct up for a few minutes because it will be clarifying in regard to several points. To begin with, if redness is an effect and therefore not intrinsic in things in themselves, this obviously applies to anything which can be causally explained in like manner. It applies to sound, temperatures, textures, etc. What about extension itself, that bastion of the Cartesians and the Lockeans? Is extension a causal primary? 
is three-dimensional extension in space with its correlates of size, shape, solidity, etc., a causal primary in the sense I earlier defined. At our present state of knowledge, we cannot say. There may very well be deeper causes in reality, ultimate factors making up reality, which take on the form of extended objects when perceived by man, just as they take on the form of red, green, hot, cold, etc. objects. As Bishop Barclay pointed out, and in this one respect he is correct, there is no presently known standard by which to distinguish metaphysically between the status of the extension qualities and the colors, smells, etc. They are all in the same metaphysical boat. Now, I want to be clear here. I do not mean to imply that I know that extension is not a causal primary. The point is you would have to be omniscient to know one way or the other. The point is, at the present stage of human knowledge, it is entirely arbitrary to draw a line and declare red is an effect, but extension is irreducible and intrinsic in reality. That is simply arbitrary at this stage of knowledge. So I want for pedagogical purposes to take a bold leap. Let us assume that extension, and that means therefore size and shape and so on, is an effect in the same manner as red, green, hot, cold, etc. Let us assume that the entire world of matter, as we perceive it, is an effect. An effect produced by the operation on our sensory apparatus of the ultimate causal primaries which make up reality in itself. Let us assume we have discovered the actual causal primaries in reality the ultimate elements of things in themselves, the basic irreducible building blocks of reality in itself, which underlie and give rise to everything that we perceive to the entire physical world as we know it. Now, what these ultimate primaries are, I, of course, do not pretend to know. For purposes of this construct, let us call them puffs of meta-energy. Now, I deliberately choose something esoteric and undefined without pretending at all to know what it means. Let us assume in some that we have reached omniscience, penetrated to the core of reality in itself, and discovered that things in themselves are puffs of meta-energy, and that what we perceive as a material world of three-dimensional objects with color, shape, size, etc., is all an effect on us of various combinations of energy puffs acting on our means of perception. So things in themselves are really combinations of various energy puffs. Suppose now this whole construct were true. The crucial question is what would it prove about the validity of the senses or the status of the sensory qualities we perceive? And the answer is nothing of any epistemological significance whatever. The point here is this. If everything is made of energy puffs in various combinations, so are human beings. And it is still an iron, inescapable fact of reality that when the energy puffs which comprise external reality interact with the energy puffs which comprise human beings, when all of these puffs enter into all of the combinations that they enter into, the inexorable result 
is the material world as we perceive it with all of the kinds of entities and qualities it possesses. This is a fact, a fact of reality, not a creation of consciousness. It is a fact that when such and such energy pumps unite in such and such a combination with other ones, the result is a man with all his properties, or an orange, or a buffalo, or a planet, or a feather, etc. So whenever we perceive one of these material objects, we are perceiving reality. In other words, energy pots in a certain combination. And every sense perception gives us real information about that particular combination of energy pots. Does it mean that extension, size, shape, color, etc. are unreal just because they are effects of the energy pots in certain combinations? Certainly not. The exact opposite is true. If they are effects of the energy pots, by that very fact they are real. Real products of the real puffs which make up reality. We did not invent the puffs. We did not invent their capacity to unite into forms which bring about a material extended world. We did not create the physical world by any subjective act of our consciousness. It is a metaphysical fact of reality that certain puffs, in certain combinations, produce when perceived by a human being an extended physical world. And that every sense perception we have gives us information about the puff combinations that exist. It is an intrinsic fact of things in themselves that X puffs combined with Y puffs combined with Z puffs, man's senses yield solid three-dimensional extended objects. Now on this account, if we pursue it, the whole material world would be an effect. An effect of things in themselves acting on the puffs which make us up and constitute our sensory apparatus. But the point is, the material world would be an effect, a real effect, and therefore a real fact. You do not deny the reality of something by explaining it. You do not make something subjective by giving a causal explanation of it. You do not detach it from reality by showing that something in reality produced it. The exact opposite is true. If you have shown that the cause of something exists in reality, if you have shown that reality itself, reality in itself, produce certain facts, then you have given the most solid metaphysical foundation there is to those facts. You have shown that they are inherent in metaphysical reality itself. In a word, if the whole construct I have given you were true, it would change nothing about the validity of the senses or the reality status of the sensory qualities we perceive. In this manner, all of the sensory qualities we perceive are inherent in reality, in things in themselves. They are real. They are not human inventions or subjective products of consciousness. Now you can see why objectivism rejects the primary-secondary quality distinction. It is not true that extension is really out there intrinsically, 
and color and the rest are really just subjective effects on us. All the qualities we perceive are facts of independent reality as perceived by human consciousness. There is no grounds whatever to divide the properties we perceive up into the extension-connected ones versus the colors, sounds, textures, etc. There is no warrant for proclaiming two kinds of sensory properties, those which belong to the object versus those which are created by consciousness. The actual facts are there are objects in independent reality which have various attributes in themselves. Human beings have the faculty of consciousness and perceive those objects by certain means and thus in certain forms. Forms inexorably dictated and determined by the nature of the objects in themselves, part of which includes the nature of man's sensory apparatus. Now the only valid distinction you can make in this context is between the primary causes in reality, the energy puffs in my construct, and the derivative manifestations of those puffs. All of their expressions, effects, results. You can distinguish between cause and effect in this way, but that is not the distinction between primary and secondary qualities as the traditional philosophers make it. Now here you have to be precise about the meaning of terms. If the phrase primary quality means quality intrinsic in reality, in other words, quality which is a real fact as against a subjective product of consciousness, then as we have seen, all the qualities we perceive are facts, all are real, all are primary. Red and green as much as size and shape. On the other hand, if by primary quality you mean exists in the objects which are irreducible primaries in reality, the objects in themselves apart from their effects, combinations, and interactions, then none of the qualities we perceive are primary in that sense. In either event, the traditional primary-secondary quality distinction collapses. There is no ground to assume that the causal primaries in reality possess in themselves the exact same form as our sense data. Since we know that our sense data are effects, and that we perceive by certain means. But by the same token, you cannot pronounce our sense data as invalid on this ground. It is only by starting from our sense data that we can ultimately conceptually unravel the information they contain and finally end up with a conceptual account of the energy puffs or whatever it is we reach at the summit of the cognitive quest. Now you can see also why objectivism denies not only Bishop Barclay's subjective idealism or the whole primary-secondary quality viewpoint, but also naive realism. What the naive realist does, in effect, is to treat all the qualities we perceive as causal primaries, intrinsic in objects independent of man's form of perception. He doesn't explain the facts of man's perception. He takes no account of the fact that men perceive in a certain form, that consciousness requires means of consciousness, that the properties we perceive are the product of an interaction between the objects in reality and our sensory apparatus. And as a result, as soon as the naive realist confronts the fact 
of two perceivers perceiving the same object in different forms, for instance, the colorblind versus the normal sighted person, the naive realist is lost and falls back to the claim that one of their senses must be deceptive. And as soon as science offers a causal explanation of some quality that we perceive, the naive realist is also lost and feels that it threatens the reality of the quality he perceives. In short, naive realism is properly named. It is naive. Its basic intention to preserve the validity of human consciousness is correct. You want to put it this way, its heart is in the right place. But it has no means to implement or defend this intention, or to support or justify its claim that man's senses reveal reality. Objectivism is not naive realism. It is not so-called critical realism. It is not subjective idealism. It is objectivism. Now, I hope that after this lengthy discussion, the issues involved in this problem are now clear to you. I want to note in conclusion that several of my formulations on this issue are new this evening. And I believe they are clearer than formulations I have given on the issue of the senses in the past, where I believe that my statements in several cases may have been misleading. So I would like to state for the record that the points I have made tonight hereby supersede any other formulations of mine that you may hear if you hear older tapes of mine dealing with the subject of the senses and that specifically includes in my lecture on objectivism in the modern philosophy course which is the companion to this one let us take our break here all right ladies and gentlemen let us now turn to the problem of the borderline case which, as you know, is one of the chief arguments put forth by modern philosophers to defend their nominalist theory of universals. A full answer to this question would require that I offer you now a presentation of the objectivist theory of concepts and contrast it to the Platonist, Aristotelian, and nominalist theories. I will not attempt such a presentation this evening. I'm assuming, if you're interested in this issue, that you have already read and understood Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. That you understand the objectivist view of the nature and formation of concepts, because there is a limit to what can be done in three hours. And above all, of why concepts are neither intrinsic in the Platonist or Aristotelian manner or subjective in the nominalist manner, but rather objective. If you understand this much, you will not have any difficulty with the borderline case question, and indeed that issue is referred to in Miss Rand's book. Now the borderline case argument, as we have seen, is one of the basic arguments used by nominalists to justify their claim that there is no objective method to determine where to draw the lines when one is grouping concretes together in the process of concept formation. A typical example of the argument, for instance, as we discussed in the course is, where do you draw the line between red and orange? Are the intermediate shades red or orange or neither? Isn't any decision arbitrary and subjective? What has reality to say on this question? 
Or to give you a new example, just for variety, someone invents an object which is just like a table in all respects. It's a manufactured object. It has a flat level surface for holding other objects, but it attaches to the ceiling and hangs from it by chains. And then the nominalist comes in and asks you, well, is it a table or not? How would you decide? In some respects, it's very much like tables, as we originally defined them. Manufactured objects, flat level surface with supports to hold other objects and so on. In certain ways, it's obviously different. How different can it be from our original uh, conception of tables and still qualify? Where do you draw the line? Isn't it, asks the nominalist, all arbitrary and subjective? Now, there are endless examples of this order. Let us first pose and answer the question in general terms, and then apply the answer to these examples. The problem in its most general form may be posed as follows. We classify concretes on the basis of similarities and differences. But the concretes in a given class will differ in various ways from each other. And will be similar in various ways to concretes in other classes. By what standard then do we draw the line? Or as it's more usually put, we have, let us say, formed some class, some concept, on the basis of similarities that we have detected among a given set of concretes. And we have defined the concept accordingly. Then we discover a new concrete, which is in some respects like the members of the original class and in some respects different. How do we decide what to do with this new concrete? Should we put it in the original class, which may involve broadening and redefining the original class? Or should we form a new concept for the new concrete to distinguish it from the concretes already conceptualized? Or is there another alternative still? And if so, what is it? Now, the answer in general is determined by the function of concept formation in human knowledge. Concepts, according to objectivism, are integrations of percepts. They enable us to isolate a set of concretes, which we can then treat as a unit for specialized study. Whether or not to form a new concept, therefore, to encompass some newly encountered concrete, depends upon the degree or extent of the differences separating the new concretes from the others we know. It depends upon whether the differences in question are fundamental or not. When the differences are significant or fundamental enough so that it is no longer practicable to study the new concretes in terms of one's concepts to date, and when the phenomenon is widespread enough so that one has to deal with it, then one coins a new concept. Now observe that there is no way of specifying in numerical terms how great a difference qualifies as significant or fundamental. In this respect, there is an optional element in the formation of new concepts. In some cases, the formation of a new concept to cover in newly discovered concrete is mandatory. In other cases, it is invalid and impermissible to form a new concept. And in other cases, it is optional. Now, I want to illustrate for you these three types of situation. And first of all, the mandatory case. 
Now, I ask you here to recall at the outset Ms. Rand's point that definitions are contextual. The function of a definition is to distinguish, in terms of fundamentals, the existence in a certain class from all others known at a given stage of knowledge. Definitions depend upon the context of knowledge because the characteristics which serve to differentiate one group of concretes from the rest depend in part on the nature of the concretes, in part on the context of one's knowledge. If you recall Ms. Rand's example of the child's initial implicit definition of man as a thing that moves and makes sounds. Within his knowledge, not yet having discovered and discriminated various animal, animals, automobiles, etc., grasping at this point, let us say, only the distinction between inert and silent objects, like chairs and tables, and the people around him, he may select moving and making sounds as the characteristic differentiating men from all the other objects he knows. As such, he has within the context of his knowledge successfully isolated men from the rest of what is known to him. To that extent, his definition is correct. It is contextually valid. Now, let's foreshorten a complex process to get back to the borderline case from this uh, takeoff point. Let's assume now that the child discovers locomotives and landslides. At this point, it is mandatory for him to form a new concept, actually concepts, to cover the new phenomenon, and mandatory to redefine man so as to keep that concept separated from his new discoveries. If he tried not to form a new concept, to include locomotives, landslides, and men under one concept, with one name, to treat them as a unit in his further dealings with and study of them, he would find himself defeated in his attempts to expand his knowledge, and defeated by virtue of the fact of there being just too many profound differences in reality among the things he is attempting to deal with as a single class. He would find that some, quote, men talk, while others hiss and rumble. That some, quote, men walk on legs while others roll on wheels. That in some their characteristics, structure, components, behavior are radically different. And thus that virtually nothing learned about some so-called men would be applicable to others. To keep track of his knowledge, it would be necessary, in spite of himself, to distinguish, for instance, the talking men from the rolling men and so on, which means he would be forced, if he is rational, to form separate concepts for the entities he had lumped together. In this kind of case, in some, the differences are simply too fundamental and far-reaching. And this is the type of case uh, in which it is mandatory to form new concepts to cover a newly encountered concrete. Now I'll look at the impermissible case. Start again with the child in the above example, with the same initial definition of man as the thing which moves and makes sounds, and assume that he has so far seen only white men, and now encounters Negroes for the first time, and decides to erect a new class, so that there are now men and Negroes, as two separate concepts. Now here is the opposite error, taking an insignificant difference as the basis for forming a distinct concept. And again, the child would find that the facts of reality would force him to alter his concepts here. 
because the color in this case affects virtually nothing about the entities involved. It is a non-significant, non-fundamental characteristic. Whether a given shade of color is present or absent, hosts of characteristics will remain similar in the two allegedly different classes he has formed. If he sets out to study men and then Negroes, he will find that virtually everything he learns about the one in anatomy, psychology, physiology, etc., etc., is true also of the other, so that the distinction he has erected is in fact useless in enabling him to organize his field of knowledge. Now this does not mean that one cannot subdivide the concept man according to various special characteristics by means of specific concepts, such as Negro, Caucasian, etc. It does mean, however, that such concepts must be recognized as subdivisions of one broader class, and that as such they all share crucial characteristics which require being conceptualized together into one unit, namely the concept man. Now turn to the optional case. Imagine, finally, that having formed a given concept, you encounter a concrete which is neither crucially different the way locomotives and landslides are from men, nor crucially similar the way black and white men are, but somewhere in between. And here we can use the hanging table as an example. Now in this type of case, precisely because the nature of the concrete neither demands a new concept nor forbids one, one's procedure is optional. You have three choices in this specific type of case. One, since its purpose and general structure are the same as tables, except for its being attached to the ceiling rather than the floor, you might decide to include it under the class of tables, which will then require an appropriate alteration in your initial definition of table on the usual pattern of contextual redefinition. And if necessary, you may then decide to subdivide tables into two species, floor tables and ceiling tables, and even give separate names to the two types. That's one possibility. Or second, since its construction will involve a number of differences from tables. For instance, you can't normally use this hanging table outdoors. It requires some specific means of being attached to the ceiling. It's not easily movable, etc. You may decide to form a new concept to designate this type of entity, treating it thus as a concept on a level with tables, rather than as a type of table. That's a second possibility. Or thirdly, you need do neither of these two things. You need not have any one concept to designate such an entity. You need not either subsume it under the old concept nor make up a new one, but merely identify its status as intermediate by means of a descriptive phrase. Entity, like tables in such and such a way and unlike them in such and such a way. Now please note this fact. It is not the case that every phenomenon must ultimately be subsumable under one concept. There are phenomena which can be handled cognitively, fully adequately, by a description formulated in terms of a number of other concepts.
phenomena which do not require the formation of a single concept to cover them, not now or ever. Now for shorthand, I will refer to this as the descriptive handling of certain concretes, as distinct from the conceptual handling of them. But you understand, I trust, that the description will be in terms of concepts already formed. The point of the distinction is only that no single concept need be formed to handle such phenomena. In other words, we do not form for everything in the universe a single concept, a single word to cover it. All sorts of phenomena are handled descriptively in terms of a number of other concepts. Indeed, all conversation and writing are descriptive in this present sense. For instance, if I say, it is a beautiful winter evening, the air is crisp, and the sun is setting with a golden glow, I have used a whole series of concepts, beautiful winter, evening, sun, glow, etc., to identify and communicate a certain phenomenon. There is no single concept to stand for beautiful winter evenings with crisp air and golden sunsets, nor is there any need for such a single concept. The descriptive handling serves all cognitive purpose, purposes perfectly satisfactorily. When you have a case such as the, quote, hanging table, therefore, there is nothing to say that you must have one concept to identify, either an old one or a new one specifically formed for it. It is optional in such a case whether to handle it conceptually or descriptively. Now, the fact that in cases like the hanging table, Objectivism recognizes a number of optional alternatives, including the possibility of descriptive handling. This fact clearly differentiates objectivism from the traditional realists in the theory of universals like Plato and like Aristotle. Now, on that traditional realist view, whether Platonist or Aristotelian, essences are intrinsic in things. For the traditional realists, each entity has an essence intrinsic to it, and we've seen that in this course. An essence apart altogether from any relation to man's knowledge or man's mode of cognition. So for instance, tablehood, or tableness, if we call it that, is a phenomenon that inhabits all tables intrinsically on the traditional view. It's present in all tables, absent in everything else. And given any concrete, it either has the essence in itself or it doesn't have the essence in itself. And consequently, there can be no options. No option, for instance, in the case of the hanging table. Either it has the intrinsic essence of tableness in it, in which case it must be subsumed under the concept table, or it doesn't have it, but has instead a different intrinsic essence in which case it must be subsumed under some single new concept naming that essence. In either case, there can be no option and no possibility of descriptive handling. Consequently, Platonists and Aristotelians alike find the borderline case examples a serious embarrassment because they have no means of deciding in such cases which entities have which intrinsic essences. And ultimately, if you press them far enough, they have to rely on, quote, intuition. Which, of course, means their theory ends up being subjective in spite of themselves. It is the defenders of intrinsic essences who find the borderline case problem difficult or impossible to answer.
But now the objectivist theory is that essences are objective, not intrinsic, and therefore there is no such problem. Concepts, according to objectivism, are human forms of cognition, forms of organizing our perceptual material for the sake of enabling us to expand our knowledge beyond the perceptual level. Essences, according to objectivism, are characteristics contextually determined which serve to differentiate our concepts. Now there is nothing in this to say that every concrete must at some point be separately conceptualized. There may be a great many concretes which there is no cognitive point in handling in terms of a single concept. There may be concretes which are not so fundamentally similar to some earlier conceptualized group that it's mandatory to subsume them under an old concept. And these concretes may not be sufficiently widespread and or of sufficient cognitive importance for us to have to conceptualize them separately at all. If you then ask me, but what class do such concretes fall into? What is their essence? The answer is we have not formed a class in the sense of a single concept with its own definition and essential characteristics for them, and there is no need to. They can be handled descriptively by identifying their relation to the nearest relevant classes. In other words, granted that essences are not intrinsic, it is not the case that there must be a single concept to cover every concrete we encounter. There are certain cases where the procedure is optional, where you can either assume a phenomenon, a subsume a phenomenon under an old concept, or form a new one, or merely handle a phenomenon descriptively. Now, of course, the question at once comes up, doesn't the existence of optional cases mean that concept formation in these cases is subjective, is arbitrary? To which the answer is no, it does not. Now note the following facts here. To begin with, the cases where it's optional are dictated by the facts. It is the actual nature of the concretes in question which determines that it is optional, in their case, how to treat them. A new concrete must be neither crucially different nor crucially similar to the concretes already encountered, if you are to have an option whether or not to include it under an earlier formed concept. And if it is crucially different, one cannot include it under the old concept. If it is crucially similar, one must so include. Note also this. Precisely because these borderline optional concretes are not, in fact, crucially similar to or different from those already known, the alternative modes of handling the new concretes are all correct. And it makes no difference which policy is adopted in a particular case. For instance, if you put the hanging tables into the old class of tables, this would imply that there are some significant similarities between the hangers and the tables. And that's true, there are. Or, if you form a new concept for the hangers, this would imply that there are some significant differences from the tables. And this is true, there are. Or, if you do neither and form no single concept for them, handling them merely in a descriptive phrase. 
This would imply that neither the similarities nor the differences are overriding. And this is also true. Consequently, all three choices are in accordance with fact, none contradict the others, and in some there is no foothold for subjectivism to enter on this point. Now you can note in this connection that different languages often manifest the fact that there is an optional area in concept formation. And yet this in no way implies subjectivism or contradiction from one language to another. Most keywords are simply translatable in a single word from one language to another. But most languages have certain words which are not simply translatable by one word in other tongues. These words are still, of course, translatable. Only in another language the translation may take a phrase or even more to communicate the phenomenon identified in the first language by one concept in one word. And this is simply a case where one language handles conceptually what another handles descriptively. And you see that neither language is wrong. Neither contradicts the others. Each is translatable into the others. The principle is the same when applied to borderline case examples. No one option in those cases contradicts the others. Each is legitimate and valid, and there is nothing in this to warrant a subjectivist conclusion. Now let me give you an analogy here. Merely an analogy. But you may find it helpful in grasping the objectivist approach to optional cases as against the intrinsic and the subjectivist viewpoint. And it's only an analogy, but still. Suppose you have a stack of books to classify on library shelves. Now the intrinsicist would say, in effect, the correct order of these books on the shelf is dictated exclusively by the intrinsic character of the books. For instance, I intuit that they must be alphabetized by author. And if you say to him, well, couldn't it be by subject or by title? His answer is only no, I've had the intuition, the intrinsic factor here is X, that's what must dictate the organization. Now the nominalist comes in, the subjectivist, and his viewpoint is any method of arranging them is as good as any other. Decide by your arbitrary whim or take a poll of society. Put the red books on one shelf and stick in some tomatoes if you want to. <laughs> Put the smooth books in front with Kleenex and so on. Now, the objectivist, objective approach, in contrast, saying that essences are neither intrinsic nor subjective, holds, using the same analogy. You would have to keep in mind two things, the purpose of the classification and the nature of the material to be classified. In other words, the conscious purpose and the facts. And given these, certain arrangements will be nonsensical and invalid. But in certain circumstances, there may be an option. Perhaps in a given case, the purpose is served equally if it's alphabetized by author or by title. You see the analogy. The cognitive purpose of conceptualization and the factual nature of the concretes in question jointly determine when to conceptualize and when there is an area of optionality. Now, in a word, to apply this discussion very briefly to the example of orange and red. Now, here we are dealing with a literal continuum, so no exact cutoff point is dictated by reality as the line of demarcation. 
Consequently, a certain range is left optional. If you would decide for some purpose to draw a line, then within certain limits, it would make no cognitive difference where the line was drawn. And that is a fact of reality, that the exact point makes no difference, and that there is a limited range where it's optional. Notice, however, that no specific line needs to be drawn. You can very well handle the intermediate shades descriptively without trying to apportion them either to red or to orange. You can merely describe, quote, those transitional stage intermediate between red and orange, progressing from a very reddish orange to a very orangey red, unquote. Or you could, as is done by painters, for instance, give every discriminable shade a separate distinct name. In other words, form a separate concept for every distinguishable shape. All such options exist, and on the grounds we've already discussed, all would be valid, none would contradict the others, none imply subjectivism in concept formation. So to sum up the borderline case issue, the borderline case puzzles and confuses people because they implicitly believe that essences are intrinsic. And consequently, they feel there should not be any optional area in concept formation. Then when they find that in certain specific cases there is an option, they swing over to the nominalist axis and are ripe for the subjectivist plucking. Now the truth is that essences are objective. This accounts for the fact of optional cases without implying any form of subjectivism. On this issue, as on so many others, the false dichotomy of intrinsic versus subjective has wrecked its usual havoc and confusion. So much for borderline cases and for nominalism, at least for this evening. And now, in conclusion, let us turn briefly to Descartes and the error of the method of Cartesian doubt. Now, you recall the method of Cartesian doubt. In an alleged quest for certainty, Descartes reasoned, I'm not repeating the whole thing, but simply reminding you now, to establish certainty, I must first refute the possibility that I am in error. He observes that people commit errors. They go insane. They mistake their dreams for reality. They misinterpret sensory evidence. They commit fallacies, etc., etc. So he thinks, how can I be sure of anything, even of 2 plus 3 equals 5? How do I know I am not committing an error in a given case, no matter how clear and distinct it seems to me? How do I know, remember, a demon is not deceiving me, so the truth is forever beyond my grasp? In essence, what is his procedure? He takes the fact of human errors, in other words, of human fallibility, and uses it to conclude that it is therefore impossible for man to be certain of any of his knowledge. The essence of the argument implicit in Cartesian doubt is this. To be certain means you can't be wrong. To be fallible means you can be wrong. Therefore, a fallible being can never attain certainty. Now, Descartes himself, as we have seen, thought that he escaped this problem through the cogito. That I think, therefore, I am was completely certain. But as we have also seen in the lecture on Descartes, the cogito does not escape the demon 
if the demon exists. If Descartes' argument invalidating human cognition is correct, it invalidates the cogito along with everything else. It invalidates human consciousness across the board. Nothing whatever escapes it. Now what is wrong with Descartes' approach here? Well, out of all the countless fallacies one could mention, I'm going to confine myself this evening to simply a few brief points. To begin with, I can't resist pointing out to you the stolen concepts used by Descartes. He argues, follow this argument, people have been in error, therefore man can never know if or when he is right on some question. Now the obvious question is, if man can never know what is right, how could he ever know that he was or ever had been in error? That he had ever been deceived or made a mistake? How could he ever form such a concept as error if deprived of any knowledge of what is correct? Error means departure from truth. If truth is unknowable, you could never form the concept of a departure from it. Inherent in calling an idea mistaken is some knowledge of what is true, by reference to which one condemns a given idea as false. So for instance, a man comes to you and says two plus three equals seven. You can say that's wrong, it's an error, it isn't true. Now what makes it possible? Because you know in this case what two and three is, namely it's five. And by reference to this you condemn the statement that it's seven as false, as mistaken. <coughs> But if truth were not knowable to us, if we couldn't know what two and three was, how would we ever be in a position to say about any answer, it's not correct? Now you might say, well, couldn't you know that a given answer was false because it's inherently self-contradictory, even if you didn't know the truth? You're not escaping the point because you're still referring to your knowledge of the truth. In this case, your knowledge of the truth, at least of the laws of logic. If you literally couldn't know truth at all, as Descartes' argument implies, you couldn't even say that a contradiction is an error. The very process of classifying something as an error presupposes that you have discovered the truth in some respect on that question. The truth by reference to which you see that the old belief was mistaken. Deprive man of knowledge of the truth and you deprive him of the concept of non-truth and the ability to recognize it. So Descartes' position here is the exact reverse of the correct one. He uses errors to undercut the possibility of knowledge of the truth. Whereas in fact it is only one's knowledge of truth which enables one to form the concept of error and to recognize specific errors when they are committed. He says, man is fallible and can err, therefore truth is unattainable. The fact is, to be able to identify the existence of errors logically presupposes that man is able to know the truth. Now, what went wrong then with Descartes' argument? Well, it takes off from the premise that man is fallible. So let us ask, what is the actual meaning of saying man is fallible? Now, it means only one thing. Man is not automatically underscore that word. Man is not automatically right. He is not built in such a way that error is impossible to him by his nature, no matter how he uses his consciousness. 
He is not built in such a way that the mere presence of an idea in his consciousness requires that that idea be true. That man is fallible doesn't in the least imply that his ideas can't be right or that he can't know for certain they are right under the appropriate circumstances. That man is fallible means merely you can't rely on the mere presence of an idea in your mind as the guarantee of truth. You must therefore do something with an idea before you can know it's right. What must you do? Well, man must form his conclusions by a specific method, a method which will distinguish true ideas from false ones. He must subject his ideas to a test designed to distinguish which ideas are correct and which incorrect. He must, in a word, validate his conclusions. This and this alone is what is involved in man being a fallible being. If he were infallible, if error was a metaphysical impossibility to human consciousness, we would not need any test to distinguish true ideas from false ones. There couldn't be any false ones. We would not need to go through any process of validating our ideas. You could form them in any old way that you wanted because erroneous ideas couldn't enter your consciousness. But since man is not constitutionally infallible, his responsibility before endorsing any conclusion is to ensure that he has performed a process of validating. Fallibility does not mean man can never know what is true. It means he cannot know what is true just because an idea is in his head. To know it is true, he must validate it by a certain method. Well, what is the method of validating human ideas? Well, that, of course, is a vast question. That is the subject matter of an entire science, namely epistemology. The question of epistemology is, by what method does man validate his ideas and therefore claim them as knowledge? Now, here I'm simply going to remind you, in a word of what you already know on this question, I trust from previous lectures and your reading. In essence, the process of validation is man must ground his knowledge on the direct evidence of the senses, that's the foundation, and he must then scrupulously derive all of his conceptual conclusions from the initial sensory evidence, guided step by step by a process of logic, of logical inference, going back ultimately to the facts directly accessible to sense perception. Logical inference in conceptual form based on sense perception. This is, in essence, man's method of validating conclusions. Now, of course, this is just a summary sentence, and you must not oversimplify here. For the present, however, I'm assuming that you understand that the process of validation in particular cases can be extraordinarily complex. When I speak of validating an idea by using logic or reason, I assume that you understand that a complexity of factors in implying that can be involved, and you don't assume that some one simple argument will prove any conclusion of, on anything out of context. What then is the answer to the problem of how man, a fallible being, can achieve knowledge? The answer is he can achieve knowledge by validating his conclusions by a process of reason and logic. When he has used reason and logic on some idea, he is no longer relying on the mere fact that the idea occurred to him. Hence, the fact that his consciousness is not automatically infallible is now irrelevant. Irrelevant to his ability to achieve certainty. He has now demonstrated that his idea is true, 
and hence he can be certain of. Now I'll give you a simple example. The child is adding up the same figures two and three. Now before he resorted to reasoning and could see the proof, if you merely ask an untutored child how much is two and three, any old number could occur to him and he could very well be wrong. That's what's meant in saying man is fallible. He's capable of error. But now assume he's studied arithmetic. And he's defined the terms and understood the proof, understands logic, and sees how if two and three were anything other than five, that would be a contradiction. At this point, when he says two and three are five, he has obliterated the earlier possibility of his being wrong on this question, because he has now taken rational steps to validate his answer. And now he, on this question, cannot any longer be in error. So what the Cartesian approach amounts to is the following gross non sequitur. Because man can't be certain apart from using a validating process on his ideas, therefore he can't be certain even when he has used a validating process. Now this completely does not follow. We can put the Cartesian approach another way. It amounts to saying, it is possible for man metaphysically to be an error. Possible for man metaphysically to be an error. Therefore, it is possible for each and every man, including the men who have scrupulously used reason and logic on some question, to be an error on every question. Now this is clearly a gross non sequitur. When you say that error is possible to man, you mean it is possible under certain conditions. Namely, assuming a man hasn't employed the appropriate validating process. It does not follow that error is possible under all conditions, including the conditions which enable a man to know that he is right. Under those conditions, he can know he is right. Now, I want to give you a different example to illustrate the general point about claiming that something is possible. This whole error hinges on the idea, but it's possible you're wrong, isn't it? Now consider this example. We know that it's possible for a human being to run the mile in under four minutes. That's possible because it has been done repeatedly. And we know that it is possible for a human being to be pregnant. It happens all the time. Suppose now I go over to an elderly crippled gentleman, <laughs> rocking in his wheelchair, and I say to him, maybe you'll give birth to a child next week after you finish running the mile to the hospital in 3.7 minutes. <laughs> after all, you're a human being and these things are possible to human beings. Now, if I said that, <laughs> the elderly gentleman would have every right to assume I had lost my mind. If he deigned to answer me at all, he would reply, what is possible to human beings in general, as a species, and in some circumstances, is not necessarily possible to each individual human being in every specific set of circumstances. Now, the same principle is applicable on the issue of error and is no less fantastic when committed on that issue. If you want to use Descartes' argument, you might just as well reverse it and argue as follows. I maintain that this room is filled with Campbell's soup. Right now, Campbell's creamed mushroom soup from top to bottom. 
Now, you can't be sure this is an error. After all, human beings are capable of reaching the truth, aren't they? And I'm a human being, so maybe this is the truth. It's possible, isn't it? Now, you see, that is the same fallacy as Descartes exactly. You cannot derive from a generalized statement of what is possible to a species under some set of circumstances the conclusion that that event is necessarily possible to every member of the species under every set of circumstances. In this case, the individual, the Campbell Soup individual, is not and cannot be right. Just as in countless cases we know, because we have proved our answers that we are not and cannot be wrong. Now, a conclusion is certain, according to objectivism, when all of the available evidence in a given context of knowledge leads to that one conclusion. And no evidence suggests even a possibility of an alternative conclusion. There are innumerable cases where this is so, and there are therefore innumerable cases of valid human certainty. Now, I have to make a final point here briefly to complete even the bare essentials of the answer to Descartes. Precisely because man is fallible and needs to validate his ideas by a process of logic, the assertion of arbitrary ideas is cognitively worthless. By an arbitrary idea, we mean one put forth without any evidence or proof. That is, epistemologically speaking, without any standing at all. Since logic is man's standard of arriving at knowledge, no idea put forth in the absence of logical backing is deserving of any consideration or attention at all. A man has no epistemological right to espouse an idea without showing its credentials. In other words, without giving you at least some evidence in favor of its possible truth. If he gives you evidence, then you can consider the idea, discuss it, weigh the evidence, and decide whether he's right or not. But if he gives you no evidence, it is not your responsibility to refute his arbitrary assertion. Your proper response is to recognize that, bereft of evidence, his claim is rationally to be dismissed, and I mean dismissed, simply given no consideration until and unless evidence in its behalf is forthcoming. Now this is the point that's summarized in the very crucial logical principle, the onus of proof is on him who asserts the positive. The onus of proof is on him who asserts the positive. It is not your responsibility to prove a negative. In other words, to disprove a man's arbitrary assertion that such and such is the case. It is not your responsibility and it is not possible for you to prove that it is not so if he asserts it arbitrarily. It is his responsibility to prove that it is so. Now, I will be very happy in the question period to elaborate on the onus of proof principle, which I would like to do, to define it more fully and to explain its deeper justification. But I'll wait for you to ask. <laughs> for now, I want simply to show you how it arises in a discussion of Cartesian doubt. And the best way to see it is for me to give you a sample dialogue with one of these Cartesian doubters. Let's say you put forward a proof of some point. You've specified your premises, defined the concepts, checked all the relevant facts, etc. You've laid out a logical, rational case for your conclusion, which integrates all known evidence. The skeptic then says, well, that's all very fine, 
but you cannot be certain. And you ask him, why not? He says, well, how do you know you haven't made a mistake in applying logic? How do you know you haven't committed a fallacy somewhere? How do you know you haven't erred in applying the validating process? You then say, well, where is your evidence that I've committed a fallacy? Go ahead, point out a flaw in my reasoning. Give me a counter-argument. Mention a fact I've overlooked. The skeptic says, I can't do that. I don't quarrel with your particular conclusion. I have no evidence at all against your specific conclusion. What I want to know is how do you know you didn't commit an error? It's possible, isn't it? Prove that you didn't commit an error. Now, if your patients hold out, you might ask them at this point, did you have any particular error in mind that I am supposed to prove I didn't commit? And here the skeptic, or the skeptic on philosophic grounds has to say, no, I can't specify the error. I don't know what it is. My viewpoint is maybe it's there. I want you to prove you haven't committed an unspecifiable, undetectable error. I can't tell the difference between your argument and a perfectly valid one. But still, I'm not sure. I want you to prove that this non-perceivable error does not exist. Now, this is the point at where the assertion of the arbitrary and the demand to prove a negative comes out in full force. Here is a case of a man, the skeptic, indulging in a completely gratuitous, wanton, arbitrary assertion. Namely, maybe there's an error without a jot of evidence to support it and demanding that you refute his baseless claim. Now, this is the point in the discussion, if you lasted this long, in which you simply wave the onus of proof principle in the face of the skeptic, indicate succinctly the epistemological status of arbitrary assertions, refrain, if you can, from immoral comment and depart. <laughs> Now, to summarize, Descartes first grants anyone the right to raise any arbitrary assertion he wants to the effect that maybe he, Descartes, is in error. And then he decides he can be certain only if he can refute these arbitrary doubts. And then, of course, he can't, and ends up retreating into doubt as his only absolute. Now, the valid procedure would recognize that to doubt without a basis is the epistemological equivalent of, and is in fact a form of, asserting without a basis. Both are arbitrary. Both are epistemologically disqualified by the very nature of human cognition. The truth is that to establish certainty, all you have to do is prove positively, on the basis of the full context of evidence available, that your conclusion is true. In other words, you simply have to prove that you are right. It is not incumbent upon you to prove that you are not wrong when no evidence of error has been produced. Therefore, I advise you, reject out of hand all questions beginning. How do you know you are not? How do you know you are not? Wrong, crazy, insane, deceived, dreaming, hallucinating, etc. The answer to all such questions should be, what makes you think I am? In epistemology, as in law, you are innocent until and unless proved guilty. And reject out of hand all claims beginning. But it's possible, isn't it? It's possible you're wrong, crazy, insane, dreaming, hallucinating, etc. 
The answer is nothing can be claimed even as a possibility in the absence of specific defined evidence. All of the attacks on certainty are done by evading a point I mentioned briefly earlier, namely that certainty is contextual. Proposition is certain when in the full context of the evidence available. All of the evidence, without exception, points to that conclusion. And I want to conclude this discussion of Descartes by giving you an example of a certainty. This is an example I've used before, but I find that it's helpful because it makes something concrete. Given the evidence that you have available to you now, you can be certain, objectively certain, that it is me Peacock that is lecturing and not an imposter. Now, I use this example because once I had an instructor in college who was a, a fanatic on the view that there could be no certainty. And he walked in one day and said, you think I'm me, he said to the class, me being Professor X, I won't use his name, but how do you know I'm not an imposter, a consummate actor taking Professor X's place? Well, let's apply that to the present case for a moment. How can you be sure I'm me and not a consummate actor? And the answer is that all the evidence, all that is available to you, leads consistently and exceptionlessly to the conclusion that it's me. The occasion, tone of voice, the content, my appearance, etc., etc. Now a skeptic walks in and says, but it's possible it's an actor, isn't it? The question you should ask is, on what basis do you assert that it is possible? Can you give even some evidence for it? Even slender foothold of a fragile thread of a beginning of an intimation? <laughs> and the answer is, none whatever. Now, contrast this, just to engage in science fiction for a moment, with a situation where you could validly, in that context, be uncertain. You see me lecturing but my voice occasionally breaks, sounds funny. At certain angles, I seem to look different from the past. Occasionally, I utter some quite dubious remarks, <laughs> and so on. Now, on this basis, you might begin to entertain some hypotheses. You still have no conclusive evidence yet, but you have at least some evidence which would be consonant with a number of different hypotheses. So you could now assert validly in this context, well, maybe he's sick, or maybe he's very upset, or whichever. These statements that such and such is a possibility are now warranted by some evidential basis. Even so far, you couldn't validly hypothesize I was an imposter. But now let's carry out the example. Suppose I suddenly came out for Immanuel Kant as the greatest philosopher in history. And you notice that one ear begins to sag a little. <laughs> And I didn't recognize people that I'd known for years, and so on and so on. Now you have evidence to raise a whole bunch of possibilities. Maybe he's gone crazy. Maybe he's an imposter. And then, suppose we have a happy ending epistemologically to this story. The mask suddenly falls off and Boris Karloff stands revealed. <laughs> you can say, now I'm certain it was an imposter. The point is that certainty is contextual, and you cannot challenge any claim to certainty with simply the arbitrary declaration that something else is possible. So if you ask me, is certainty attainable? I'll answer in, I think, an appropriate fashion, 
certainly certainty is attainable. So much for Cartesian doubt and the problems it raises. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have now completed the syllabus for this course. We have traced the development of philosophy from its beginnings in ancient Greece through its collapse with David Hume. And I have tried within the limits of the time available to indicate to you the essentials of the objectivist answer to some of the central problems posed by traditional philosophy. I believe I have now at least touched on every point that I promised throughout the course that I would discuss this evening. So I want to take this final opportunity to thank you all for your attendance at this course and for your interest. I hope you have enjoyed it. I have enjoyed having you as a class. And I now declare this course on Founders of Western Philosophy formally concluded. Thank you. All right, I have a great many written questions accumulated and I will try and work through some of those and then try and take some from the floor if I can get through these in the time we have. I have one left uh, from last week which I was carrying around. Given your brief statement of meaning, would you regard the concept of God as meaningful or meaningless? In the sense that I think is meant by this question, I regard the concept as meaningful but invalid in the sense that it designates no entity in reality. You can distinguish between metaphysically meaningful and epistemologically meaningful. A concept is metaphysically meaningful if it designates something actual or possible in reality. On the other hand, if it is devoid of connection to reality, it is to that extent metaphysically without referent, metaphysically meaningless. This does not, however, mean that God is in the term God is in the category of the word gloop which I just made up and which stands for nothing, whatever. When a person talks about the issue of God, I can understand what it is he thinks he is saying about reality and point out what are the contradictions, the problems, the flaws in his reasoning. I could not do that if he simply uttered ishte twiddle de tweedle, true or false. <laughs> and therefore, I think it is a, uh, you must grant that uh, the term is meaningful in the epistemological sense. That is, that you can grasp what the intention is, but in fact it has no reference in reality. Um, let me see here. What is the answer to Barclay's argument that it is meaningless to say your experience of something resembles or is just like the real thing? Well, there is no answer to that because if you were trapped in a world of consciousness, studying only your own sensations, it would be meaningless to say that your sensations resemble real things. Sensations are not entities which can be compared to or contrasted with things. You can't say your sensation is three inches long and the thing you're perceiving is six inches long, therefore your sensation is half the size. The point of the objectivist view of, of uh, the senses is that in sensation, we are not contemplating the contents of consciousness. We are contemplating directly the thing. So there are not two things to compare to each other. The entity and the awareness of the entity. The awareness of the entity is only the awareness of the entity and does not have intrinsic characteristics which you can then put side by side and say it's like or unlike the entity. That was the point of my rejection of the representative theory of perception. 
Could you explain the relation of the concept causal primary to the objectivist theory of the law of cause and effect? What are causal primaries causes up? Well, uh, the person who handed this question in to me said he wasn't fully clear, but I think I get what the question is. A causal primary, in this sense, means the ultimate irreducible elements of reality, that out of which everything else is comprised, and that the operation of which produces all derivative effects. So, for instance, we can, to break up matter, macroscopic solid matter, analyze it in terms of molecules, their laws and behavior, molecules in terms of atoms, atoms in terms of electrons, and so on. Now, in the sense I meant it, the energy puff, and you remember that was just a construct, is what you reach at the very end of the line. And uh, from that aspect, by calling it a causal primary, I mean in the analysis of the ingredients of reality, this is the final irreducible you reach, which cannot itself be analyzed in terms of anything more primitive. What is its relation to cause and effect? Well, simply, it's a cause, and the rest of the phenomenon in reality would be its effects. I don't know what other meaning there would be to that particular question. How, can the law of non uh, how is the law of non-contradiction grasped, and what is its relation to the axiomatic concept of identity? Well, that is somewhat off of our main points tonight, but I guess it's more or less a free-for-all uh, tonight. Once you grasp the law of identity, A as A, the law of contradiction is simply a self-evident corollary of the law of identity. The law of contradiction is simply a restatement of the law of identity and has exactly the same status of self-evident truth. You say to me, what, why must it be the case that nothing can be A and non-A at the same time and in the same respect? And the obvious answer is because if it were A and non-A, the two parts would obliterate each other, and it would be nothing. It would have no identity. The example that I use uh, for classes, for instance, is to tell a student uh, who want to see this point, uh, you got a grade in the exam of uh, 74. And he says, fine, at least I got a C. And I said, but I left out the fact that you also didn't get 74. <laughs> and he says, what, you mean you graded it at two different times? And I said, no, at the same time, you got 74 and you didn't. He said, well, you mean you were using two different standards, and by one standard, one, and one the other? And I said, no. Same time, same respect, same standard. You didn't, didn't get 74. And then he throws up his hand and says, but then I didn't get any grade at all. And that's the point. He didn't. The 74 annihilates the non-74 and vice versa. The grade has no identity. In other words, a contradiction is a violation of identity. A thing which is A and non-A is a thing which is nothing. And therefore, the law of contradiction is simply a restatement for epistemological purposes to guide human thinking of the basic metaphysical law of identity. What is the objectivist view of the nature of mind? Is it a faculty, an entity, or a process? Would you accept the following one-sentence answer? Because that's all I'll give you. It is a faculty possessed by an entity, the human being, whose essence is to perform a process. Namely, the process of consciousness, which is a state of action, of sensing, integrating, conceptualizing, etc. So, 
from different aspects, it is all of these. Do clairvoyance and mind reading exist? If you want a one-word answer, no. Here is, I don't know when I can look at this, here is a perfect case of the onus of proof principle. There are 10,000 disreputable non-existent phenomena which have their champions in today's world. If you grasp the onus of proof principle, you will have an epistemological burden removed from your shoulders of a kind uh, that is almost unequalable by grasping any other point. If you don't grasp the onus of proof principle, you will think when someone claims clairvoyance or mind reading, stigmata, Indian rope climbing, and the whole crew of things, ESP, etc., well, now I have to go and prove that they don't exist. The fact is the onus of proof is on the people who claim that such entities do or such entities or processes do exist. Now, since I have had several questions asking me if I would elaborate the onus of proof principle, I just happen to have something I will say on that question. To give you just simply briefly a deeper indication of why that principle is true. It is because man is not infallible and omniscient that he cannot ever validly assert arbitrary declarations. It is because he's not infallible, he must adhere to the correct epistemological rules to claim that anything is true. Here you must understand what is wrong with an arbitrary assertion. By arbitrary we mean an idea put forth in the absence of evidence of any sort, no perceptual evidence, no conceptual evidence, a sheer assertion devoid of any attempt at validation. In effect, a blind cognitive whim adhering to no logical rules or standards, merely uttered by fiat. Now, I said during the lecture that any such statement deserves no epistemological consideration or attention at all. Your proper attitude should be it is as though the statement simply had not been made, cognitively speaking, which means it is not your responsibility to refute arbitrary assertions. In other words, to rack your brains to try to find or imagine arguments which will show that what is being said is false. It is a fundamental error on your part if you even try to do this. The rational procedure in the face of an arbitrary assertion is simply to dismiss it at once without further discussion or argumentation, merely identifying that it's arbitrary and as such inadmissible. Now this is where the onus of proof principle comes in. What does the onus of proof principle mean? The onus of proof is on him who asserts the positive. Now the first thing to grasp is what is meant by positive here. It's not necessarily the grammatically or linguistically positive because you can express a negative content with an affirmative term. For instance, I can say, the man is innocent, the man is guilty. Both statements are grammatically affirmative. But the positive one there is the statement, the man is guilty. He has committed a certain crime. A certain phenomenon did exist. The negative statement is, the man is innocent. He did not commit the crime. A certain phenomenon did not exist. In other words, positive is an existence-affirming statement, a statement which says that something or other exists. Negative 
The corresponding negative would be the statement which denies that the thing exists. Now, if you understand this, then the onus of proof principle says, if a person asserts a positive statement that X exists, he is required to adduce evidence supporting his statement. If he does, then you must either refute his evidence or accept his statement. But if he offers no evidence for the existence of X, his claim must be rejected without argumentation. In such a case, the corresponding negative that X is not true or does not exist must rationally be endorsed and no evidence or proof of the negative in such a case need or can be given. Now why? Well, the basic reason is metaphysical. It's the fact that existence exists and that only existence exists. In other words, there is no nothing. That harks back all the way to Parmenides for those of you who are regular students. The distinction between something and nothing is the cardinal one in this context. A thing which exists is something. It is. It's out there in the world. And as such, it has effects, consequences, results, by which, at an appropriate stage of knowledge, it's at least in principle possible for one to grasp and prove it, either directly by simple perception or indirectly by its secondary consequences as, for instance, the way we discover and prove the existence of atoms. But a non-existent is nothing. It is not a type of existent. It is not a special constituent of reality, which gives off special effects or consequences which one could hope to detect. Now, for instance, somebody asserts there's a convention of green gremlins over in the corner of the room. Now, gremlins don't exist. They are nothing. They are not a constituent of reality. What would be a possible answer for someone who would say, prove to me now that those gremlins do not exist. Give me an argument. Point out to me the effects or consequences of the non-gremlins in reality. Well, obviously, there can be no special effects, consequences, traces, signs, or manifestations of non-gremlins. It is simply preposterous to say, point out to me the facts in reality which follow from the non-existence of gremlins. Because the gremlins are nothing, and therefore nothing follows from nothing. The rational view of negative propositions is, nothing is nothing. A negative proposition is to be established by showing simply that there is no evidence for the corresponding positive proposition. That's all that validating a negative can consist of. How would you establish, for instance, that there is no mouse in this room now? The only way you would do it is to show that there is no evidence for the existence of a mouse. No evidence for the positive, and thus the negative is validated. Not directly, but indirectly, by the absence of evidence for the positive. It is not as though you have a special perceptual evidence of a non-mouse, like some kind of a special dark vision revealing non-mousehood. <laughs> there is no special positive perceptual evidence against the mouse. There's no anti-mouse vision which you can have. There is merely no evidence for the mouse and nothing else is required. 
Now, that is the principle to keep in mind as applied to all issues, whether on the perceptual or conceptual level. If there is no argument, no evidence for declaring that a murder or a disease or clairvoyance or God exists, the absence of evidence for the positive is all that is required to validate the corresponding negative. And that's why you cannot prove a negative. It simply can't be done. All you can do is show that there is no evidence for its corresponding positive. You can refute a positive if it's false, assuming the person gives evidence for it, which he has misinterpreted. You can then show him his misinterpretations. Refuting a positive consists of showing there's no evidence for it, of showing that some alleged evidence is not actually evidence. And in that way, you can refute a positive. But you cannot directly prove or establish the negative. All you can do is show that the corresponding positive is based on no evidence. And that's why a person who utters an arbitrary positive, by that very fact, has refuted himself and invalidated his position. That's what I wanted to get into the lecture, but had no time. So now I've got it into the question period. Mm -hmm. Let us try one from the floor now, since I'm drowning in uh, written questions. I have see somebody at the very back. Is it philosophically necessary for causal primaries to exist? I would say yes on the grounds that there is no infinity. And therefore, ultimately, reality must consist of something. But please don't ask me what it consists of, because I'm not a physicist. In the front, yes. Uh, what is the objective of you on symbolic logic? What is the objectivist view on symbolic logic? The same as the objectivist view on numerology. <laughs> In other words, if you mean by symbolic logic, that concoction which owes its source to Bertrand Russell and his several ancestors, derivatives, contemporaries, and successors, objectivism rejects the entire field as invalid. It rejects it as invalid on many grounds. The only one of which I'll mention is that objectivism denies that logic is arbitrary, that you can start with any logical construct or system you wish, you wish, make up any logical rules you want, and then proceed to derive uh, any conclusions you want to. Objectivism holds that if that's the procedure you want to engage in, give it any name you want accept logic or anything to do with philosophy. Say that you happen to have a predilection for playing a particularly foolish, pointless game. And then, all right, if you want to do that in your spare time and you don't tell other people about it, there's nothing wrong with that. But to make an alleged subject out of that, to define implication and so on in the crudely arbitrary ways that these people do, and then to declare, this is just another alternative to Aristotle and in fact superior to Aristotelian logic, Nothing could be more incompatible to uh, the objectivist uh, viewpoint. Let me try now to make a dent in, in s some more of, you see? I'll see if I can just read any. When a person says, just to take the very top one, it is possible for this, it is possible this plane will crash. Can I validly use the onus of proof principle? Since it is metaphysically possible that planes crash, how do I answer? 
Well, that happens to be an example I use in another lecture, so I don't know if that's just a coincidence or not. Here you have to distinguish two different statements. It is possible metaphysically for something to happen, which does not warrant you in saying it is possible metaphysically that it will happen. Those are not the same statement. When you say, excuse me, possible epistemologically. When you say that something is metaphysically possible, you are simply ascribing a certain capacity to an entity under certain circumstances. For instance, man has the possibility of walking. It is possible for him to walk. And that is not an epistemological use of the term possibility, but a metaphysical one. You are describing a faculty or capacity or potentiality of man, and it is a certainty that he has that potentiality. When you say it is possible that so-and-so will happen, and the normal word, usage in English is it is possible for something to happen indicates simply the metaphysical possibility, the capacity. But when you say it is possible that such and such will happen, you are giving now an assessment of evidence. You are saying there is some evidence, even if the evidence is not conclusive, that the phenomenon in question will take place. And here you contrast possible to two others, probable and certain. There's a scale of evidential assessment. On the lowest level, when you have some evidence, you say it is possible that such and such will happen. As the evidence mounts at a certain point, you say it is more than possible. It is probable that such and such will happen. And as and when the evidence becomes conclusive, so that everything points to this one conclusion and nothing points in any other direction, at that point you say it is certain. Now you cannot, the relevant point is, pass from a generalized statement that something is metaphysically possible to a given kind of entity, to the epistemological conclusion that therefore you have some evidence that that possibility is being actualized. Now contrast these two types of situation using the very example. You're in an airplane. Of course, an airplane metaphysically has the capacity to crash. In that sense, it is possible for it to crash. After all, it's not a feather, it has weight, it's large, it's uh, up in the air, there is a law of gravity, and so on and so on. Airplanes have the metaphysical capacity of crashing. They also have the metaphysical capacity of not crashing, of landing safely and without any difficulty at the airport. Both of those are metaphysical possibilities. Now, in a given context, you're on a particular plane. By what right do you attach yourself to it is possible for it to crash and say, therefore, it's possible that it will crash. You go by the actual evidence. And here, the actual evidence is much more complex, and I don't want to take the time to go into it. But assuming you got on the airplane at some place which has a decent screening system, uh, and uh, it's a reputable airline, and it's a sunny day, and etc., 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 then you say in the normal case, it's possible for this plane to crash. It's also possible for it not to crash, and all the evidence I have points to the fact that it will land safely and none against, if that's the case. In which case it is invalid suddenly to say out of the blue, with no basis, maybe it will crash. On the other hand, suppose the engine starts to knock and the uh, pilot announces uh, uh, we're running out of fuel and the clouds are closing in, and so on and so on, at a certain point, uh, you can say, you know, it's actually possible that this plane will crash. At that point, when you have some evidence, you are entitled to say it's possible that 
it will crash. But you must have some evidence, the abstract possibility that airplanes in general can crash under some circumstances does not entitle you to say about any particular plane in the absence of any specific evidence that it's possible this one will crash on this flight. Now let me try if I can get... I'll try to take a couple that I can answer quickly. Can you be certain of a conclusion if you know that knowledge relevant to it exists which you have not examined? No. If you know that knowledge relevant exists, that you haven't examined it, then you certainly cannot be certain. The question I'd like to know is how did you know that knowledge relevant to it exists? Uh, did you find that out because you simply made a partial study of the subject and you yourself know that the facts you have are very fragmentary and don't suggest any particular conclusion and there's much more material already known? That's one thing. Or did you find it out because you'd made an exhaustive study of a subject, you have a full case, and somebody arbitrarily tells you if you studied another 50 years you'd find out you're wrong, only don't ask me how or where. But assuming that it's actually, you have reason to believe that relevant knowledge exists that you haven't examined, no, certainty is contextual, but that means you must have the full evidence of the knowledge available to you. What you can say in such a case is, on the basis of the knowledge I have so far investigated, everything I see points to this conclusion, and I know nothing that points elsewhere. But if I also know, for specific reasons, that there may be evidence elsewhere, then I keep that in mind and I don't declare I have certainty until I investigate the relevant knowledge. Uh, is the ultimate standard for new concept formation versus inclusion in a group usefulness to further conceptualization? No, I would certainly not say usefulness if you mean that in any pragmatist use of the term. The ultimate standard is, as I tried to indicate, the facts of reality as interpreted according to the method of a conceptual consciousness. And therefore, and the purpose of conceptualization is not to feed on itself. The purpose of conceptualization is not further conceptualization. The purpose of all conceptualization is the grasping of facts of reality. And therefore, you form a new concept or not according to whether that will, given the facts of reality, objectively promote a knowledge of reality. Is there any difference between the statement, this is X's apparent shape, and this is X's shape as it appears to me? Yes, I could understand, I could grasp a difference between those two. I suppose you are looking at something from a great distance and your viewpoint is obscured. And you say, it appears to me that the man in the distance has the shape of uh, a very large stomach, but I can't see that clearly at this distance and I'm not sure. So his apparent shape is an obese rotundity, rotundity, let us say, but I can't be sure. On the other hand, you come right up to him and you, say, you see him and you're standing right there and you investigate and you say, Mr. X's shape, as I perceive it, as it appears to me, is, uh, uh, let us say, definitely circular. Uh, if it is, then uh, there's no doubt. In other words, the word apparent there could be used to express doubt about the actual nature of what you're perceiving. I trust that my lecture does not require me now to repeat that when you say this is the shape as I perceive it, or as it appears to me, you do not draw subjectivist conclusions from that, but I won't repeat that whole thing uh, over again.
If differences in forms of perception are attributed to different quantities of information available to the perceiver, isn't your assertion that all perceptions are equally valid contradicted? Now let me get this one. I said that there can be differences in form of perception and that one form can be differences in the amount of information. How does that contradict my, my statement that all perceptions are equally valid? The fact that you are not given everything does not mean that what you are given is invalid. There is no relationship between quantity and validity. If your senses give you, let us just pick an arbitrary figure out of the air, 5,000 facts, don't ask me how I arrived at that. <laughs> and somebody else's senses give them 10,000 facts. On what ground would you say your 5,000 facts are no good because you have less facts than he does? A fact is a fact. Validity is a question of the relation of your cognitive mechanism to reality. Uh, the most you can say is, if a, uh, the normally sighted person is against the one who perceives no color gradations or color changes, gets more information. Just as the person who has 20-20 vision gets more information than the one whose eyes are, give him uh, much less information without the correction of eye glasses. In that sense, as I tried to say in the lecture, one form of sense perception can be superior to another, but that is simply a matter of how much is given you directly and how much do you have to reach by inference. It is not a matter of the validity. On the question of certainty, in a hypothetical case where an actor successfully pulls off an impersonation, can it be said the deceived had knowledge and was contextually certain. Yes. In other words, that question will not work. <laughs> Let me clarify that. The person is arguing like this. Suppose you all believed I was completely, uh, it was me and I wasn't an imposter. And then, after you were completely convinced and you wrote it out in blood and you were willing to sign your <laughs> life on it, it turned out after all I had made a, you had made a mistake. Doesn't that prove uh, that you uh, uh, really were wrong? It proves that you made a mistake. But remember, you cannot from that draw the conclusion that therefore maybe you are wrong the next time. The fact that you are wrong once simply tells you there is a certain area where you should be a little more careful. Go over where you were wrong. Define to yourself, what was it you left out the time before that enabled you to, be, to make a mistake. And when you identify that factor and correct it, whatever it may be or however complex it may be to name, when you grasp it, then you know. You have put to rest that source of error. You will be aware of that from here on in and you proceed with greater confidence as a result of the error. Now you see, this is a tip, I don't mean to impugn the motives of this question, but this type of question is very typically asked to allegedly proved, you see, you can't be certain because you said you were certain and it turned out you were wrong. Inherent in the question is the giveaway. By saying it turned out you were wrong, it means the questioner knew what the truth really was. And if he was able to know it, you are able to know it. So even if it turns out that you are completely wrong on some question, that there is no logical warrant for that to impair your epistemological self-confidence in the future, if you proceed according to a logical uh, method in the future. Now, I have a terrific number here, and I don't have uh, any way of knowing how to 
Give me a second. In what context and with reference to what actions or attributes of specifically human entities can the term subjective be validly used? Well, not to give you a whole detailed analysis of the term subjective. The term subjective can be validly used to designate a type of error, a type of departure from reality on the part of a conceptual consciousness. To begin with, the term subjective cannot, for all the reasons I mentioned in the lecture, be applied on the perceptual level. Nothing on the perceptual level can be subjective. Everything on the perceptual level is the product of an inexorable physical interaction between the sense object, uh, between the object and the sense organ. The concept subjective is applicable only on the conceptual level and only because man has free will. His consciousness is not automatically infallible. It is therefore possible for him to use his consciousness on the conceptual level in a way which departs from the facts of reality. Now, I don't mean here simply an error. If a person is rational, they go by the evidence, but they make an honest error. That person is not subjective. He is simply mistaken in exactly the same way that a person can be completely honest in a moral issue and yet mistaken. So he is wrong, but not immoral. Subjective as an epistemological term is not synonymous with simply mistaken. It means a mistaken content which comes from a method which represents a departure from reality at its root. For instance, a man says to you, I believe the earth is flat. You know the Flat Earth Society that I think there are still remnants of somewhere in Britain. And you ask him why, and he says, I feel it. I feel it very strongly. And that's it. Now you can say that belief is subjective. And that man is being subjective. Meaning, he is placing the subject above the object. And meaning by that, he is treating his consciousness as an entity which dictates to reality. So his arbitrary feelings create the corresponding facts. That is true subjectivism. The subjective is the view the, of the primacy of consciousness applied to human beings, that human feelings can shape or mold facts. And in that sense, the term subjective can validly be used to designate a type of departure from reality. It cannot, however, validly be used to designate any fact of reality. Notice that even the phenomenon of consciousness itself, the phenomenon, is not subjective. Man's faculty of consciousness exists. That is a fact. It doesn't exist because we want it to exist or don't want it to exist. It exists. That is a fact. And in that sense, it is an objective fact in the same way uh, that any fact is uh, objective. Well, we are over our time. There is simply one last question which I can answer in a word, or rather in two sentences, if I can find that. In this question, I had planned to conclude on and I saved it from last week. It said, you mentioned that you're planning two different courses. What are they and approximately when will they be taught? I can answer that and I will conclude on that note. Uh, next fall, I will be offering, I believe at the same uh, hotel, a course on introduction to logic. And uh, two years from this uh, where are we now? December. Two years from this fall, in other words, the fall of 74, I will offer 12 lecture course 
on introduction to objectivism, covering it from metaphysics and epistemology on through ethics and politics. That is two years from this fall. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much and good evening. All material in this program is protected by copyright and may not be reproduced in any form or manner, nor played before a live audience, without the express written permission of the producer, the Ayn Rand Institute. For further information, or to order other products, please visit estore.aynrand.org or call one 800 729 6149